This is RDQI. Crack open a cold one, because this episode is all about beer. I'd have a beer! Ryan and I discuss whether the invention of beer led to the invention of civilization, and this takes us just about everywhere. From the role of beer in society, past, present, and future, to the dangers of simplifying cause and effect. Don't worry if you don't like beer. There's something for everybody in this episode, whether you're a teetotaler or a booze hound. So sit back, crack open your beverage of choice, and enjoy the show after a word from today's show sponsor. Farmer Jay here. Hope you will. I'm sure your current lawn mower is just fine. But did you know that you can mow your lawn in half the time with the Wildcat tractor? That's right. Think about what you could be doing in that time. You could be tending to your crops, maybe feeding your goats, but really, you'll be saving a lot of time. Call your local Wildcat tractor dealer and ask the sales representative about the X350T riding mower. Dave, is beer the best explanation for the appearance of civilization? So I think we want to frame up that question really quick. Um, so, you know, for most of, of prehistory, human beings were hunter-gatherers. We were in these very small groups that traveled around to where the food was. Um, and that was, you know, the basis of, of um, you know, these small groups is just to survive. So, you know, we would hunt, we would forage for, for wild fruits and vegetables, and that was the way that life was. At a certain point, human beings got away, for the most part, from these hunter-gatherer groups and formed larger groups that were, you know, uh, location-specific, um, you know, that had divisions of labor, all of these different components that make up what we call today civilization. So when you're asking, did beer create civilization, um, that question really doesn't have a definitive answer in academia, right? There are a lot of theories. There's a lot of evidence as to this theory or that theory, but there is no concrete answer as to what created civilization. One of the theories is that the civilizations built up around the need for beer. Um, and, and, you know, you can kind of explain a little bit more about why, what was different about beer that we needed to change the way, you know, societies functioned fundamentally. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, again, like you said, we're in prehistory here. So there's no recording of beer, by the way. Hey, now we're talking. So prehistory hunter gathering groups traipsing about the world, um, surviving and who knows how this happened, but humans must have stumbled upon the fact that sugars probably most likely found in fruit or, uh, fermenting grains that sugars can turn into alcohol. And we don't know how that happened. We don't know who figured that out. But someone definitely did. And eventually someone also figured out that, hey, all this wild grass that's growing out here, that's going to eventually become barley and wheat and those things that we developed over time, the grains from this grass actually can make alcohol. And therefore, we call it beer. I don't really exactly understand why it was called beer at the beginning, but that's how we call it now. And it was all about this idea of 
using grains, therefore having to have crops that can be harvested reliably and predictably, to create bread and or beer. Beer and bread are pretty pretty dang close to each other in a lot of ways. And there would have been an imperative for these hunter-gatherer groups to actually um, act this way because the motivation of being able to create beer, A, it's not just that it's a social lubricant that ethanol is present and we can be inebriated and enjoy conversation with each other during stressful times, let's say. It's also clean to drink and actually pretty good for you if you're drinking in small quantities, low alcohol versions. And back then, it's also clean water to a certain extent. So you knew you weren't going to die necessarily. That's a pretty good um, deal back then you know, 8,000 BCE, something like that. <laughs> so there was, there was a, not a need, but certainly a strong motivation for people to say, hey, instead of us wandering around and harvesting these grains, what if we kept planting the seeds and just kept harvesting the seeds? And what if we just did it in the same field year over year? And then what if we built a village right next to that field and then you, that's kind of the underlying idea here is that this motivation to create beer is probably what led to, some people say, to people assembling in large quantities together in urban centers, which is the foundation of what we would consider civilizations. Yeah, that, that's a key because hunter-gatherers, you, you know, probably did ferment beer within their own little tribal units, um, and they did have it on the go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can ferment a gallon of beer in a, in a you know, goat stomach or something like that um, and carry it around with you. But, you know, you got to carry around a gallon of liquid for how long does fermentation take? A week, two weeks, something like that? Mm-hmm. Yep. At a certain point, you're like, yeah, this stuff is really good. Um, we want more of it. But in order to have, you can't carry around a five-gallon carboy, <laughs> you know, of, of beer. You've got to put that in one static location. Um, and so the theory is, right, that, you know, human beings said, well, okay, I guess uh, I guess we're going to, we can't move around with this five gallons, so I guess we just live here now. Yeah, and I think that's key to point out in particular is that probably what would have happened is, Someone in this group, this tribe, let's say, that's meandering about, you know, the Indus Valley, wherever you want to think they are, somebody must have had the intuition to understand, like, oh, when grains get wet and we make bread with them, the bread tastes different and we all feel a little bit different. So someone in the group must have recognized that and started to run with it when they noticed different subtleties to that reaction change like kind of like an early scientific method except that i'm sure that was not scientific at all but there was someone who had an intuition that was that was born out and they probably figured out were the first one in that group to figure out oh we can make beer basically right to some degree so then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you have someone inside your group who is the beer maker right and that is the first step towards civilization um which is division of labor right yeah I, well, I mean, I, I I would assume that the first the first step would be let's let's stay in one place because I want to ferment five gallons at a time because I can carry a one, around one gallon, but I drink that in an evening. I want to have beer all the time, so I need to be in one place. I think the division of labor came later because you know when when groups 
did kind of congregate in one place and they started to brew more and more beer. You know, th- yeah. they up until this point, hunter-gatherer societies, they may have had some kind of division of labor, um, but probably not much. For the most part, one person was responsible for just about everything needed to keep them alive. But when you're brewing beer in a large quantity, something that you know these, these tribes have never really done before because they'd never had to, um, you know, they started to realize, well, it's sort of silly for one person to be responsible for every aspect of the beer that they brew for their own personal consumption. It would make a lot more sense because you have to, uh, you know, gather a lot of grain or, or fruit or raw material of some kind. It'd make a lot more sense for the person who is the best at that to just focus on that part of it. Um, you know, there's also, uh, you know, what kind of an advanced, um, you know, thinking today is called economies of scale, right? If you have right. one person who's growing the grain and that's all they're focusing on, they're going to get really good at it and they're going to find efficient ways to do it. And they're going to find, you know, efficient ways to speed up the process and to create more grain. Um, and then there was one person who was really good at brewing the beer and they could brew all of the beer and they could do it all at the same time. So you didn't, you know, you could use a, um, you know, one location or one type of yeast or one. Uh, and then, you know, where do you, where do you ferment the grain? Uh, pottery. Well, <laughs> you know, not everybody's great at doing that. So who's the, you know, the person who can make the best pottery? Um, you know, they can create a, uh, factory and, in, in efficiencies in the way that they do that. Not, not a factory, but <laughs> a factory in the sense that, um, they didn't it, know they it, were it, making it, the first factory, but what they were doing was making the first factory. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, but in order to do, in order to accomplish that, uh, that division of labor, you need, um, more people you need rules right because you know hey if i do if i create my own beer then that's my beer unless somebody fights me and steals it but if you have a society where people are doing component parts then who has rights to the end product well now you need rules <laughs> right um, yeah a yes and a no you know, here's where you are on the right. totem pole sort of thing um you know and that's that's sort of the basis of, of like how, how an economy, a trade economy is, is formed, right? Because, um, you know, what, what trade economy is, is then, okay, well, everybody contributes, everybody gets an equal share, but well, wait a minute. What if, what about the person who works a lot harder than the other person or, you know, certain job is, is harder or more dangerous? Well, they get a larger share. Well, how do you track that? <laughs> And that's, you know, kind of the, the messy the side of, yeah. of writing and number systems and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, um, so oldest civilization, the cradle of civilization is widely regarded as the Sumerian Empire, what we would now call Iraq, basically. Um, and it's the, kind of the foundation for a lot of ideas, not just beer, but also writing. Uh, Cuneiform was the first written language, I believe. Uh, I hope I don't get that wrong. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. And uh, probably invented the wheel around this time. So a lot of foundational, like things that we just assume as humans, you know, that we know how to make a wheel, that we know how to write, and that we know how to make bread, or in this particular case, a fermented bread that becomes a beverage. Uh, 
<clears throat> and it's interesting that you know anthropologists, people who study people and why they behave the w- the way they behave, it's kind of up for debate. Actually, was the cuneiform writing of the Sumerian Empire was that developed as a way to manage their agricultural system, or did it already exist and it just happened to be used to write down specifically? their harvests and details um, that were important for them to keep. And I mean, that's basically like, it's the beginning of history was probably these Sumerians writing down what their harvest was in this particular province. So which came first and why was it even there to begin with is kind of an interesting one to spin around for a second. So I think, I think that answers your question though. You know, it's, it's very, it's very, easy i think for us as humans to ascribe or or really even want to ascribe very simple singular causalities to effects and phenomenon that we witness yeah right so mm-hmm. it's easy to think that okay the written language was created to tally up agriculture it's essentially the fur- the a way of accounting Um, and that's, you know, the question we're talking about is did beer create civilization? Um, but I think the answer is it contributed to civilization. Most, most likely it was by no means the only cause, right? So, you know, I, I think, I think a good way to think about this uh, metaphorically is the concept of a mosaic, right? So when you see a mosaic from 50 feet away, it looks like this beautiful picture, this beautiful work of art, this very wonderful textured art, but it's a singular piece of art. You know, there's a singular theme to the mosaic. When you get up close, you realize that the mosaic is made of these little broken, scratched, dirty tiles, Um, up close, it's, you know, when you look at the micro level, it's very, very messy. And how did civilizations form? Well, it wasn't one cause. If it was one cause, what that implies is that a group of people sat around one day and they said, you know what? Beer is pretty good. We want to brew more of it. We should create this civilization and sit down and, and, you know, do it that way you know, all in favor and, and they won. Um, (laughs) right. Six to six to nine or six to three. Dave, wouldn't it be crazy? Right. Wouldn't it be crazy though, if there really was that instance and they did vote six (laughs) to three? (laughs) Well, Hey, there's a lot of instances of those in, uh, American history. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. But you're on, Um, you're on the right track though. It wasn't just the idea that we could ferment as humans, we could ferment grain through a complex process that wasn't really even understood then into alcohol and which provided a pretty key social lubricant for civilization because to have civilization, you need to have dense centers of population. And if you're used to being able to walk around, you know, a square hundred mile radius, square hundred mile radius, if you're used to being able to walk around a square hundred miles as your territory, all of a sudden living in a village which might seem very quaint and bucolic to us would be intolerable to that individual. Mm -hmm. So providing some sort of lubrication does help 
facilitate, but it can't be the root cause of solely. I think you're spot on about that. Right. And it's, you know, and this is, this is, I I think, um, a problem that we have in modern day. And I mean, I am certainly guilty of it too. I know you are. Everybody is. It's, it's so natural and it's so comforting for human beings to ascribe one reason to something, you know, or one, one cause to a problem when in reality, uh, you know, so take your cuneiform example, right? Um, it was created to, uh, basically keep track of, uh, you know, points, right. Establish an economy of some kind. Well, who's, who's the, who decided that? Who's the we in, in that, in that example? I mean, what's more likely is that, uh, you know, Steve, um, needed to keep track of how many goats that he had. So he started making scratches and, you know, when he got to a hundred, he, you know, he didn't want to count the scratches every time. So he drew a triangle to represent a hundred. And then Samantha, you know, these, these are very Sumerian names, by the way, Samantha, she couldn't speak, right? So she had to draw pictures to convey what she was thinking. Um, you know, and then Samantha and Steve met one day and they, and then, and then, you know, multiply that by a hundred, by a thousand, and you get this system of writing that evolves, but somebody didn't write down, you know, John Smith wasn't the person who created cuneiform. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's a, you know, you can step back and look at a language today and you can see the singular piece of language and it looks beautiful. But when you get up close, it's messy. It's so many different inputs. And those inputs, when you're looking at, at two or three tiles, it's impossible to even step back and imagine what it will eventually become. And I think that's a real problem with how we tend to look at very complex problems today. Um, taking, a, taking a big old leap here. <laughs> but, but it's... it's the, the day-to-day, the individual micro-interactions are messy, and it's so hard to kind of take a step back and, and, and see the bigger picture. At the same time, it's easy to ascribe a very simplistic big picture to a very complex problem. And I think, it's, I think it causes a lot of um, issues with trying to solve problems. I think it's also very dangerous when there is a very simplistic reason behind a problem that seems like it's correct and is very it's very enticing to believe that simplicity but it's very it's it's not correct or or the solutions that you're going to derive from that simplistic view of the problem aren't going to solve the problem because they're only solving for one root cause that might be one percent of what's really causing that problem or ten percent or fifty percent who know right right? but you're you know you're fixing one element of it right so i mean like samantha and steve in this example maybe the reason they're like hey we need to have beers i'm tired of us getting in fights with our neighbors but if we meet with them weekly and we drink beer together maybe we won't kill each other next month (laughs) you know that may be true. That may be your one, you know, one size fits all solution that maybe if we just share beer, it'll be fine. Or who knows the first time you try and share beer with, um, 
I don't know who are the bad guys in this situation. We have Steve and Samantha. Um, what's a good bad name? <laughs> uh, I think Bob, uh, Phil, Jane, all very strong Sumerian names. They're good luck. So Phil and Linda in particular at the village over. Oh, yeah. They meet with Steve and Samantha and they have beer together as a peace offering. But what if those people just decide this wasn't the root cause of our violence. It wasn't because you weren't sharing beer with us. It wasn't because you weren't willing to be in community with us. It's because we have no food and we have no, no way to acquire food unless we kill you. So like you can't subs- you can't say that okay from Stephen Samantha's point of view if we just gave them a little bit of beer a little bit of something something to tide them over that the violence would stop in this weird random Sumerian instance it wouldn't be true and so if you made that decision as Stephen Samantha you're probably going to end up in a pretty bad place based on that decision making. That was such a yeah. weird way to explain that. <laughs> No, 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 no. It makes sense though, because um, I think I think when we deal with problems like that in our in our day to day, human beings are smart enough to realize that it's not just one cause. I think the danger becomes when we're trying to solve these societal ills, I guess, as you would put it, right? So think about think about mm, what's something not controversial. What's I mean, everything's controversial these days. Um, which is sort of my point. So think about, think about poverty, right? Um, there are, you know, every, every country on earth has a problem with poverty, Mm -hmm. um, to varying degrees, right? There are so many different theories as to why poverty exists, there are so many um, there are so many solutions and a lot of solutions that are very convincing that are completely antithetical to other solutions that sound just as convincing right I mean they would they are completely almost opposite ways of thinking about it I mean think of trickle up and trickle down economics you know trickle up economics says that if we give money to the wealthiest people, they are the ones who are the business owners, the innovators, the inventors. They will cont- they will invest that money in their businesses, and that investment will trickle down to the laborers, right? Because you have you have uh, think about a business. You give them a bunch of money, they're gonna invest that in new technology, and they're gonna hire people to do that. They're gonna hire people to produce this this new stuff. Um, and then you have, you know, trickle down or trickle up economics, which I mean, is the opposite, right? You give money to, you know, the people who are making the least because, you know, they are oftentimes living in poverty and they need money to buy basic necessities and things like that. But even if you, you know, you give money to consumers and then they invest that money into the businesses and the businesses grow and, and those are are two fundamentally different concepts and people will fight about them, you know, over and over and over again. Um, because you can't do both. You can only do one. They're mutually exclusive. Um, but a lot of these solutions to the, to the problem of poverty 
are solutions that simplify why it's a problem in the first place. Right. And that, I think, is the danger because how do you how do you educate a population on you know cause we're talking about poverty right and there are how many countless problems in the world it's it's easy to ascribe a you know one one sentence cause to a problem so that everybody can be educated about that problem but and everyone can get behind at, that problem and the need to fix it too. Cause the motivation side is huge in solving problems, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those who, those who are, are not in poverty, what is your motivation to solve poverty? Especially if you never see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but anyway, I mean, I, you know, we can, we can talk about the, the causes of poverty and that's not really what this, this podcast is about, but I mean, they're probably, you know, I, I could probably list off the top of my head, 10 very distinct root causes to poverty in the United States, just the United States. I mean, every country is going to have very different inputs. Um, but how do you, how does a, how does a mind very quickly assess a problem? You know, if you're, if you're talking about poverty with somebody else, it's almost impossible to put all 10 of those reasons in the back of your mind or in your head when you're discussing this problem at any given point, let alone if you've got 10 plus causes for every other problem that you're supposed to be, you know, aware of and educated about. So what, what's the solution to educating the population about why problems exist? Man, that is such a matter of perspective. It is crazy because you could, you know, let's do polar spectrums here. One would be if you're in power, um, playbook since at least medieval times, if not since the dawn of humanity and history is lie and manipulate the people so they're not educated about how to solve problems so that when you provide them a solution, you're the savior. That would be like my extreme take on the one side. I'm not going to say left or right because it doesn't matter. And the other side would be um, something close to maybe a pure democracy where everyone has one vote and they get to chime in in that way, in, that, in such fashion, to decide how to choose to solve the problem. So those, those are two vastly, vastly different ways. And I think that's what's kind of fascinating about history in, in itself is it's the constant struggle of humanity of how do we solve our most pressing issues and what is the best way to do it and there's even arguments about what is the best way because usually it comes down to what is the actual end goal is it the preservation of the Sumerian Empire or is it so that the impoverished 10 to 15 percent like bottom percentile who are in the worst situation would have a marginally better life. And depending on who's in power, that question is going to be answered differently every time. <laughs> yeah. But I think yeah, that, that's but I think that's the key about I mean kind of what this whole podcast is about is we need to learn new languages as humans to be adept at understanding the problems that are facing us. Not new languages as in we need to learn how to write cuneiform, but new languages as in how would how 
does society bind itself together? And how can I use language to communicate that idea and why it's valid? This is exactly what we're talking about. It is. And I mean, if, if you feel, I feel like if people take away one thing from this podcast, it's that, or, or this particular episode, it's that if you haven't really, really thought about what's causing a problem, you probably don't know enough about it to offer an opinion that is relevant. Mm-hmm. Is that going too far? No, I think we can even go even, let's go even further. <laughs> Um, if you let's, don't, let's think about COVID-19. Well, I mean, right? I think you can say, I mean, if you want to go really further, if you, if you're not educated on the topic, you can be manipulated to believe whatever someone wants you to believe. Yeah, that's true. And, and to your point about poverty, right? I mean, you, it's, it's the motivation or the why, like, why do you want to solve the problem? What is the problem to solve? And there are a lot of people who they don't want to solve poverty, but they know that they will get more support behind what they want if they appear to be solving poverty. Mm-hmm. And so they frame up their solution in that it's going to solve for this problem. But really what they're doing is they're solving for you know their own interests and mm-hmm. not the interests of the society at large. But that's, you know, that's where the manipulation comes in. And, right. That's oh where the end, the end around gets played. Yeah, and that's such a complex thing to unpack, unpack, and we're not going to do that clearly because right, each, but, each you know, individual if, if you situation. Have an opinion about, if you have an opinion about a problem, you need to make sure that you understand a 360 view of that problem and that your, your data points cannot come from one talking head. It can't come from one Facebook article. If you offer an opinion on something, it better be something you have taken the time to think, to research, and to sit back and critically analyze differing positions and really understand what it is you think, not based on what what animal is on your t-shirt, whether it's an elephant or a donkey, what, what um, your friends and family believe. I mean, you know democracy is kind of about disagreement. You should disagree with your friends and your family and you should be able to discuss those disagreements. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going off the deep end here. We're talking about beer, right? This was supposed to be a fun conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, but all major heads of state in history have made decisions uh, I shouldn't say all, because when you get into the Islamic tradition, that's not the fact. But the majority of heads of state have made major decisions of civilization since history has been recorded under the influence of beer and under the guise of beer. Because you are, because what we're talking about is how do you make a complex decision about a complex problem that there is no empirically right answer to just in the same way that there's no empirically true understanding of which came first bread or beer or why was writing created was it to account for agricultural production or something else we can't know those things right so you can't rely on an absolute to dictate our actions however 
what we can do is kind of like, you know, the grass Tyson talks about is you need to be intelligent enough to know that you know something, right? But I think one of the most profound aspects of wisdom is even if you are highly intelligent, you also need to have a capacity to understand that you could entirely be wrong. And if you're not willing to accept that, then your decision will always be made based on um, subconscious motivations rather than I am open to being wrong because it might be the wrong decision for the group to kind of extrapolate it on a society level. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, 100%. But it's a lot easier to not think that deeply and just to um, try and steer people according to your motivations. And I think that's what you see throughout human history. It's um, it's nothing new. It's not like we, while we live in a divisive time where things everything seems manipulated to some degree, um, it's just being displayed to us in a different way. We just have the internet now. That's all. So here's an interesting question. If, if human beings started in small hunter-gatherer tribes, and I'm going to make a, a big stretch inference here. All right. You know, if, if that's how human beings developed, then that was human beings' original natural state. And what we see now and what we've seen sort of throughout history is a lot of severe disagreement um, and right now in, in, in the U.S., we have this, this crazy polarization. And to your point, people are not thinking about the merits or the argumentative points or really sometimes even the logic of why they believe what they believe. They believe because subconsciously they you know, you know, there's, there's something that's pushing their agenda. And while there are some people who are pushing a specific agenda, I feel that most of the people who fall into that category are really falling into a tribalism mentality where their tribe is red or their tribe is blue. And they believe everything that their tribe believes, whether or not they believe it themselves. And they don't really think about whether or not they believe it themselves. Do you think that, we we've created civilization but we still have a natural tendency or a natural desire to live in in tribes because we still have this tribalism behavior that's present today yes i think as humans so is civilization a mistake there are people that argue that um, that is not a it would not be an original idea for you and I to postulate it that let's put it that way there is oh, man there is no there's definitely an undercurrent of thought of like prehistory is probably the best humanity ever could be because it was just us living as our natural selves now that's always going to be mired in a lot of things because what is our natural selves even mean is open for so much philosophic debate (laughs) if you if you open for evolution there is no natural state right exactly and i think we do because it's science (laughs) might want to edit that one out (laughs) i liked it though yeah we'll see we'll see i mean that in and of itself is a whole nother podcast right there that comment at least 
I think when it comes to what's fascinating is the foundations of civilization, which, you know, we, I mentioned to you briefly, and there's six tenets of them, and we're not going to go into detail, but there's two that stood out. Well, three that stood out. One was you have to have people living together in urban centers, um, which obviously back in the Sumerian days meant like, you know, 2,000 people lived in a village. That was, in, that was the urban, you know, center of the day. So you need that. So you need people living together. People living together is always going to cause problems because we disagree with each other, right? We just, we have different opinions. I disagree with that. <laughs> exactly. Exactimal. So you're always going to have strife there or at least conflict, right? But apparently you also need to have division of labor, which is important because as we've already discussed, you can accomplish much more as a group of 10 people if those 10 people are somewhat specialized and divergent in their fields of work, right? So, okay. Extrapolate the problem out today. You know, there's nobody alive who can build a car for themselves. Maybe one or two. Very few. Yeah, maybe. Right, but from like, exactly. Now, the third part, which I think is interesting, is that there has to be a social and economic class system in civilizations. And it's not me saying this. It's not like, oh, Ryan just decided to say this. It's kind of understood by anthropologists. Those are some core tenets of what civilization actually means. So it's interesting that you get to this place where there has to be, according to civilization, a hierarchy. And the only way, the reason that hierarchy probably exists, again, this is all extrapolating, is because you had this, this meeting of people where they could... They had a surplus. They didn't have to, all of them didn't have to work every hour of the waking day to survive. They had started to have time to think and start to decide how they're going to go about living their life in the future and how to make their life better as a group. And that starts to enter a really interesting kind of shift of, it, it's not like the population is going to be diminishing anytime soon in the world for us at least probably not um no. barring some really i mean if <laughs> yeah 2020 2020 has been a year but for that for what i just talked about to come about we would need like a 24 i mean it would have to be it'd be bad so that's not going to be our major issue but we still have a lot of problems that as a global community and that's the thing the thing that our cultures struggle with the most is the fact that we really are deeply intertwined. And there is no simple answer to any of our problems, whatever they may be. But we're going to have to find a way to make it work. And what's crazy to think is that somehow at the end of the day, beer will probably still be involved in all of our major state decisions for the next hundred years as civilizations. Well, I mean, explain that because our, our current president in the U S is a teetotaler. Correct. And he doesn't write much policy. Um, as was evidenced by the, the 2020 GOP platform which was copy and pasted from 2016 um so i would say that let's put it this way sure the leader he's a teetotaler good for him like that's actually a pretty good lifestyle choice the 
the bureaucratic system in the United States, you better believe that all the people that really make this country run, a good portion of them are consuming alcohol in social environments. Mm-hmm. And there's probably, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had business meetings. The most profitable ones happened over a beer well after work hours. I'm sure you have similar would, sentiments. Oh, hundred percent. I, I would. So, I mean, just to be devil's advocate here, you know, that, that statement is very, is very assumptive. And while I'm, I'm sure that you're right, you know, there's, there's, especially today, there's a, there's, I, I see it, you know, more and more people, um, either, you know, drinking much less or abstaining altogether from alcohol, um, which is really interesting to me. Um, so, you know, phenomenon I've, I've observed a lot, um, you know, recently. So I, you know, we, you and I are both, um, in the millennial group, but want to point out that the, the older millennial, (laughs) um, you know, borderline Gen X kind of, um, but, but I firmly millennial, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm working now with a lot of, uh, Gen Z, uh, kids and, you know, I remember happy hours when I was first starting out in the, in the corporate world. And I mean, they were just, they were ragers, right? They were, they were parties. Everybody was, was getting, you know, getting drunk. The, you know, the, the leadership of the company were, you know, like doing this stupid, you know, like taking, buying rounds of shots and all that. It was, it was blast. Um, but you know, at those parties, I was no matter what, I was never even close to the drunkest person at those parties, at those happy hours. And now happy hours, Gen Z, they don't drink or they, they politely drink. Um, and again, broad, broad statement. Sure, <laughs> but, sure, of course. Um, but just, you know, from, from my own small sample size, um, they're, they're just more like I now me and my, my millennial colleagues are the ones who are drinking and the others are having one or two or, you know, and that's, that's kind of about it. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that, right? Uh, you know, they, they grew up in a time of social media and you, you know, you don't want to do anything stupid and something stupid that's caught on video can plague you forever. Um, but Which is just one of many also, reasons why consumption of alcohol might not be so appealing, right? But it's also health conscious, and you know, health health just continues to get finer and finer in terms of of you know human performance. And a lot of you know a lot of people, and hey, I'm getting on that bandwagon too. Of how can I increase my my physical performance, mental performance, and and I hate I'm overusing the word optimize lately. I'm trying to stand away from it or stay away from it, but but optimize my, my peak performance. And, and there's so much evidence now that, you know, a, even a small amount of alcohol can really be detrimental if you're trying to, to optimize your performance. Um, and I, I, that's, that's the way the wheel is turning now, whether that's cyclical and, you know, gen Y or, whatever why do we name it generation gen z there's no letter that comes after z, right well we'll just have to start double inventing a, more letters generation double a <laughs> double a <laughs> um you know we'll, we'll jump right back into the party scene but 
Um, yeah, and Dave, really quick for context, it was, what, the 30s when the manufacture and sale of alcohol was illegal in this country? Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, so the pendulum swings, and man, if if the U.S. isn't good at one thing, it's really good at making the pendulum swing, and there's always <laughs> change. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, look, how many authors from the 20s did you and I read growing up where the, and by growing up, I mean college at this point for me at least, where the <laughs> amount of alcohol out. being consumed by these characters, which were loosely based on real life. I'm thinking about one or two books in particular. I know what you're th- I know you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Where the amount I mean, we can of- call it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the sun- I mean Heming- Hemingway was a, was a bona fide alcoholic, so... Right, and that, but I also don't think it was necessarily too unusual for someone to consume at that level. That's no. a supposition. I don't really know because we don't have statistical analysis for that. And even if we did, I'm not sure I would trust the statistical analysis on that fact. But the point is that, I mean, clearly there's an ebb and flow, especially in American culture, of what is an acceptable amount of alcohol to consume. And we're always going to fight about that, probably, to some degree. Um, But it just kind of goes to show that even though it might have helped bind societies early on in the formations of what became became civilization, it's still going to be helpful to have alcohol to kind of lubricate the social wheels and actually really make everyone work together better. Now, what I'm curious to see is alcohol creation is a pretty natural phenomena you just have to create the right environment and let nature do its thing we've started to step into a different realm as humans where designing our drugs is really the way we go about it and i'm not talking about like psychoactive stuff we just want to talk pharmacy that's a whole interesting sphere where we're taking medicine which there were times in history where Drinking schnapps or whiskey or having beer or wine would have been considered medicine, which is also crazy to think about. Still is in the Czech Republic. <laughs> there we go. Czech Republic. There it is. Well, that's a good point, though. I mean, how many how many of my Gen Z people that don't drink that I just mentioned are on SSRIs or, um, you know, other forms of anti-anxiety medication or stimulants, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost, it's like... Beer was the first of many. Well, no, not necessarily, because there probably were some predating cultures who were consuming things like mushrooms or mm-hmm. you know yep. peyote or ayahuasca or whatever. But it seems to be um, evidence you know, one for it, of, right? But one of one of the first um, you know civilized producti- production based um, forms of getting high, <laughs> you know, was and booze. is there. Is there a is there a fundamental human need to escape briefly from reality? Because that's what what alcohol is. I mean, we can we can obviously we've created whole industries around uh, alcohol as a culinary instrument, and there is definitely validity to that. I mean, you and I will talk endlessly about you know flavors and and beer and wine and things like that. But I mean, the, the fact is is that is alcohol is. Like coffee, you know, one of those things that um, human beings don't 
have a natural taste for, right? I mean, human, human, uh, well, and I mean, really kind of any animal species, the taste has evolved to identify poisons and things that will make you sick. Um, and you know, I don't know if there are many people who had their first sip of beer and thought, yep, this is delicious or their first sip of coffee for that matter. But then the mind altering component kicked in. And then the next time you came around, your brain were kind of remembered, Hey, this taste, I remember this, this made us feel really good. And you develop this taste. Um, you know, so is, is the, I kind of have completely spaced on my question. <laughs> no, you're good. No, we're getting to the end. I feel like we need the question and I feel like I we're know, dancing I know around we it. Um, well, I mean, obviously we're, we're going to pause. We're, I mean, no, we're not pausing here, but we're, we're going to. Yeah. Let me riff this on this for down. a second though. So, what I'm hearing is, oh man, now I totally blanked. It's probably the second beer, man. Fuck. It's just definitely the second beer, no, which just, is good. It's good to note that for future podcasts. We and, probably shouldn't be drinking. And I was trying to make the transition from like, yes, it's not just the fact that you feel inebriated, but you, you're also your inculcation into drinking culture is in the context of society. So it's like an initiation of right, right? It's it's a youngster becoming a man or a woman inside of their society. Could have That function could have been carried out explicitly through the consumption of alcohol. Now, I don't know, because again, we don't know. We're talking like the edge of history here. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to take that into consideration about how our culture functions now, then there still is a lot of merit for beer and it, you know the other alcohols that can be developed merely as a way to say, look, we as the elder generation have experienced many things and we're going to teach you the younger generation many things. But one thing we need to learn to share together is social experiences. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that alcohol is still probably the best drug for those type of interactions. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, so, so here's our ending, right? If we, if we take my hypothetical Gen Z, it's, it's hilarious. I'm picturing like three specific people, which obviously I'm not going to name, but, um, nobody would know if I did. (laughs) Um, but so, so people are shying away from drinking. Um, but you know, somebody, somebody once said to me, um, as a piece of advice, as a piece of wisdom and, you know, take this as you will, but everybody needs a vice. And I don't know if vice is the best word, um, but everybody needs some sort of release, some sort of escape. Um, and if you look at, you know, mind altering substances, it is a constant throughout history, right? We, as you, you know, for as many problems as it can cause, we've never given it up as a, as a, as a species, you know, 
Um, so when we look at, you know, our, our Gen Z people who aren't consuming any, any alcohol, well, are they on SSRIs? Are they on anxiety medication? Are they on stimulants? Are they on, are they going home and smoking weed? Um, but all of those things are very antisocial behaviors and experiences. If you're on an SSRI, um, and, and nothing, you know, against uh, SSRIs or, or therapy, you know, I think SSRIs are, are very important, especially if you have chemical imbalances to help you. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not disparaging that in any way. Um, but if you are, and nobody really abuses SSRIs, but like, you know, stimulant medication or, or like acute, um, anxiety medication, uh, like a, like an Ambien or a, a Zoloft or Z, uh, not Zoloft, uh, Xanax, you know, things that people take to, to essentially get high Vicodin. Um, they're very antisocial. Alcohol is social by, uh, you know, you can obviously take it to an antisocial place, but nobody gets together and does a bunch of Xanax. <laughs> you know, nobody gets together and people do get together and, and, um, do other drugs and there's a social component to that, but there really is nothing that is truly universally human and just in, and is the, it's the social lubricant. It's, you can get together and you can really interact and be around and, and further your relationships with the people around you. I, I don't think that is going to go away. And I think we're seeing some negative, negative consequences of a younger generation shying away from the social vices to the antisocial vices. And we're seeing problems with, with that. Um, you know, this is going to make me sound a little bit old fashioned, <laughs> uh, not, not old fashioned, but a little bit old. Um, but one thing I notice with most of the Gen Z people that I work with is, uh, they cannot make sustained eye contact. Um, <laughs> and whether that's, you know, a product of having to like having always having a phone around, um, you know, you and I, right, we, we grew up when, you know, we, I think I got my first phone when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. Yeah. That um, sounds so, right for me. Know, yeah. We're not digital natives, but we're, we'd still we get it. Our brains are still um, pretty plastic when we were introduced to them. Yeah, but we never had, you know, when we were, until I was 14, if I was in an uncomfortable situation, the only thing that I could do was look it in the face and, and you know, kind of just like deal with it. Now, and I, I see this in myself too, something uncomfortable is happening, grab my phone, look at it. It's a distraction. It's a way to it's a way to remove yourself from an uncomfortable situation. And I think, you know, the newer generation that's always had this this device has kind of learned that this is their escape from when things get get messy. Um, but uh, you know, we as a society we're moving further and further away from the like making socializing in bigger groups the norm and it's more common to be isolated or with one or two people um and i don't know if that's a good thing and that's you know i think a lot about that now with with covid is you know 
uh, <laughs> somebody posted a meme about how, um, you know, this is introverts time to shine because, um, you know, they love the fact that they can't leave the house and they're only around a certain amount of people, but it's, you know, for me, it's, it's driving me crazy to, to not be around people all the time. Um, and I think it really just further drives this wedge in between people. Um, and you know, you saying alcohol is, is behind all major decisions. Alcohol is behind everything about how humanity moves forward. I think, I think you're right. (laughs) You know, I think, I think you can, you can avoid it. Um, and there are people who do, but it's always going to be prevalent for as long as society is prevalent because once socialization is removed, well, what's, what, what is a society? What's a society without the, the root word of society? (laughs) Yeah. So especially in this time of COVID where distance between humans is the best option for humans how do you think alcohol will play its part in history with us learning to be close together again <laughs> <laughs>